reflecting this afternoon on just how thankful Anna and I are for your reception and welcoming hearts um, as we come all the way from the West Coast, um, the homesickness uh, that we have felt is deep, and to have a congregation like yourself to welcome us has been made all the difference, so thank you. In the time we have together this evening, we will be meditating upon the gospel according to John. So if you'd turn with me there to chapter 6, verses 23 to 35. Now, you'll all remember that immediately prior to this passage, we hear the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then John's account of Jesus walking on the water. Keep that in mind as we work through this. The crowds who were with Jesus just the day prior had eaten a meal which he had miraculously provided for them. Now, he's crossed the sea, and these same people are looking for him. So, hear God's perfect word. Verse 23. Boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Pray with me. Gracious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are truly thankful for your continual provision and your sustaining gifts. Feed us now by your word, so that we might be shaped and built into that which you want us to be. Build us up, provide us the spiritual food which you've set before us, bless the hearing of your word, and give us a hunger for your son. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. As we dive into God's word, I want to take great care to articulate exactly how dense today's passage is. We're all familiar with it, so it might seem silly to try to push this. 
But we also know that God's word is rich. Tonight, I want us to hear this familiar story with particular care. The words that we hear today are words which must be metabolized if we are to understand the nature of who Christ is and what he has to offer us. In light of this reality, we must belabor clarity, but not at the expense of beauty nor metaphorical speech. What you need to know this evening is tonight, again, Christ is asking us a paradigm-altering question. For what do you hunger? Now, this phrase which Jesus spoke to the disciples doesn't surprise us much anymore, does it? We are familiar with the text. To an extent, we've been desensitized, perhaps, to the strangeness of these words. And this isn't bad. Perhaps it merely means that we've been, you know, well instructed. So let's be charitable. Let's try to get ourselves in the shoes of this questioning crowd. Jesus' choice of words must have caught them off guard, surely. Is Jesus trying to be vague? Is he speaking cryptically? I, I don't think so. You'll notice in the passage, he's not interested in changing his word choice. He chooses to identify as bread, and I think that he's being quite selective with his words. So why does he insist so fervently on this image of bread? Well, I would posit that this metaphor is exactly the key for understanding the entirety of the passage. You see, the metaphor of bread is not simply a vehicle for the main point, but is the main point. He's communicating a reality to this crowd which cannot be broken down or explained without his word choice, without this metaphor. And this is just simply how language works, isn't it? We're, we're familiar with this. You've heard it said, he's got a heart of stone, or the stress is killing me. Hopefully not tonight. You, you see, we paint, we paint pictures with our words as uh, putting it poetically, brush strokes of the tongue. But this makes us ponder tonight, the Christ who is speaking and the way in which he is speaking must both be taken into account if we are to properly understand what he's saying to us. Granting all of this, the appeal of our God to you tonight in this passage is very clear. Hunger for the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Let's not be afraid to, to embrace this language. In just a few verses, I'm sure you all remember well, the disciples will tell Jesus that his language is too hard and plead for him to use an easier image. His claim was too bold for many of them. But when confronted, Jesus does not respond with an apology. No, he doubles down. We must eat the bread which the Son of Man will give to us, the bread that Christ himself is. May the Spirit give us grace to allow us to hear the Lord faithfully rather than grumble about his rhetoric. So why the metaphor of food? We touched on it briefly, but why is it that right here, very intentionally, in this part of John's testimony, Jesus tells the story? using these words. More importantly, 
Why is it that Christ is choosing to teach this lesson right here in this moment? Well, I think we can gain insight when we notice that all three of Christ's claims in this passage are given in response to questions. Let's look again at the text. In verse 25, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, you all are seeking me not because you saw a sign, but because you ate of the bread and were filled. Work not for the food that perishes, but for the food that remains unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For the Father, God, has set his seal upon him. Now, we touched on this already, and I know you know it, but this crowd, who had just the day prior been with Jesus, had just seen some pretty marvelous signs. They were marveling, indeed, how he had crossed the sea with such speed today. However, do you notice how Jesus doesn't answer their question at, at all? <laughs> they ask him how he had gotten across the sea so quickly. And then he responds by redirecting the conversation. You see, their question betrayed their concerns and desires. The choice of Christ's metaphor begins to take on a different flavor once we notice this reality. Jesus is crafting a discourse by which the questioning crowd is being invited to come to Christ with the right intention, or to use Christ's own words, with the right craving, if you will. He's telling them to hunger for him for the right reason. It is as if our Lord is telling them, you all are seeking me, but you're seeking me for the entirely wrong reasons. I have more to give to you than you could possibly imagine or comprehend. Yet, you approach me seeking mere material substance. He's encouraging us to correct our motivations and aim for something much greater. He's unveiling, if you will, the shallowness of our own desires. This convicted me myself as I was, as I was pondering this. How frequently do we ourselves come to God in the name of his Son, and ask for things of relatively little importance? How does our pride or our selfishness or our fear blind us from the infinite wealth and incomprehensible generosity of our Lord? Indeed, our sin strips our eyes of sight and disorders our desires for the wonderful things which God has provided for us. I was reminded of C.S. Lewis's words in his work, The Weight of Glory. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy himself is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In God's mercy, may this not be said of us. You see, the questioners do not seek Jesus out of a sense of wonder or desire for him in and of himself, but for secondary things. They seek him for the temporary things that they can extract from him 
rather than the infinite vitality and sustenance that he can really provide. Look again at verse 27. Christ tells them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. See, the passage isn't simply a command. It is also a reassurance. The Father has sealed the Son with a divine stamp of approval. The kind of seal that any authoritative and genuine document from a king or an authority would be stamped with. The seal marked the presence, if you will, of the king. To hear a sealed address is to hear the king himself. Jesus is offering a guarantee. This crowd can trust him. God has sealed him. He is, in fact, demanding that they trust him to provide much more than they're willing currently. The divine cert certification, as it were, stamps Jesus not simply um, as the sole provider of this eternal food which he's offering, but as the eternal food being offered. It is not something that Christ is sending. It's himself. Jesus himself is sealed by the Father and sent. The Son was sent to be sought. He is the bread to be hungered for. Christ alone is the authoritative word of the King, and he himself is claiming here to be the source of eternal life. Regardless of these strong statements, the crowd seems to miss the point. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus' warning to heed the object of their cravings seems to be missed entirely. Rather than repenting and letting Christ become the object that he's claiming to be, they ask Jesus, what works does God require? What, should, what do we need to be doing? Do you notice again how Jesus in his answer masterfully takes the crowd's questions and scrapes away their mistaken assumptions? They ask for a list of works. They approach Jesus thinking that he's going to offer them a rule book, a new Torah, a new law, if you will. Their concern has an improper orientation to it. Their hearts seem to be foolishly assuming that there is some deed, that if they, they can only accomplish it, God will owe to them this eternal food as due recompense. Jesus, again, in his wisdom, answers their question by reorienting their question. They ask him, what works must we be doing? But Christ answers that the work, singular, which God requires, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Christ is declaring to them, and John is recording for us, that there is not a multiplicity of tasks which must be fulfilled in order to accomplish God's work. It's as if the crowd is seeking some secret insight from Jesus, as if Jesus was going to give them some hidden knowledge to build up a set of achievements which, if completed, would result in eternal life. 
Jesus flips this on its head in how he answers their question. He insists that what they need is faith. He just finished telling them that he's the object of this. Do you see how, the, how he answers these questions is reorienting the conversation? But the re reorientation goes much farther than to merely subvert their expectations. No, Christ isn't simply making things easier for them. Appearing before them as the God-man, he is telling the crowd, if you want to be eternally fed, eternally fulfilled, and eternally alive, God requires that you put all of your trust in me as the one person able to provide all that you need. As will become clear later in John 6, Jesus' claims are hard to swallow, if you will. They cannot stomach Christ's obvious identification with both God and the agent of God's salvation for his people. This is exactly what Jesus is pressing. You can see the crowd's hesitancy in taking Christ at his word. Look at verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowds want proof. This is incredible considering what they had just witnessed the day before. You remember that before we started the investigation this evening, we recalled that they had just been miraculously fed, 5,000 of them, actually. Certainly they remember this. 5,000 men? Perhaps they're pressing Jesus on something else. I think this is exactly the case. It brings, they bring up Moses as an authority. It's as if they are saying, you know, our fathers also ate bread in the wilderness which Moses gave to them. What makes you so special? What could you offer that Moses didn't? Jesus does not relent. Jesus then says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus here makes two clarifying points which we should hear well. First, he asserts that indeed Moses did not give the Israelites the bread, but God did. See, Jesus is highlighting the core issue in their understanding of the scriptures here. It isn't as if Moses, in his own power, made bread just fall from the sky. That would be absurd. No, Moses was the agent through which God Jesus' father provided salvation for his people. The point wasn't Moses' power, but God's provision. The second point is this. Jesus is claiming to be the ultimate object that the miracle of manna in the wilderness was foreshadowing. You see, the sign of manna was pointing to Christ. The bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice the word choice. The bread is he who comes down from heaven. The bread is a personal agent. 
In this statement, Jesus is not simply presenting himself as a greater authority than Moses, but again as the thing signified in God's sending of manna. The reason why Israel hungered in the wilderness at all and then were miraculously fed by God wasn't simply an end unto itself, which isn't to say that God doesn't care for his people, but it's foreshadowing what God would do more ultimately through his son, through his word, not just for Israel, but for the world. Was this not the promise? The irony here must not be lost on us. For Moses himself belabors this point. If the crowd were to open their scriptures, they would see that it is written in Deuteronomy 8.3, The Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does this passage begin to help us understand more clearly why Jesus is using this metaphor of hunger and of food? Does not John himself go to great lengths to remind us that this Jesus who is speaking is nothing other than the word which has come from the mouth of God? He is the word made flesh. Jesus is calling the crowd and us today to remember this paradigm-altering reality. Jesus is the word which has come from the mouth of God, the bread from heaven for the salvation of his people. Jesus has made this point before. Just a few pages prior in John 4, I'm sure you all remember the Samaritan woman. Remember her story, right? She's sitting at the well, or Jesus is sitting at the well, and she comes to the well to draw water. They have discourse. Jesus asks for water. But then Jesus promises her something strange, living water. See, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water at this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These are not simply well-crafted words spoken by an orator. This promise is a hyperlink, if you will, to Isaiah 12, 3, where it is written, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This prophetic word draws from Israel's experience of God's saving work in the past as they wandered, thirsting in the wilderness. Does this sound similar yet to the manna? Remember in Numbers chapter 20, where Moses strikes the rock and water pours forth as salvation for God's people. Isaiah does not simply use this passage to remember the past, but as a prophetic hope looking to the future. Our Lord very intentionally then pulls from this imagery in his discourse with the Samaritan woman, and he uses it to reveal his identity. Jesus explains to her that indeed he is the well of which the prophet speaks. Remember what Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians. The rock in the wilderness was Christ. The Samaritan woman sees this claim, responds in belief, in joy, and is sent as a herald to the good news. But let's come back to our passage this evening. What's happening here? Well, to put it perhaps too easily, 
much of the same exact thing. In claiming to be the bread from heaven, Jesus is making again this claim that he made when he offered living water. How do our crowd this evening respond? Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus here makes the same and equally challenging claim. Again, charitably, put yourself in this crowd. We've been raised hearing this language. How would have, the, how would have they responded? Well, they don't like it. In our passage today, if you keep reading, later in John 6, you will see that not everyone responds appropriately. It drives a division between the would-be disciples, and it drives a choice, again, for us today. I'd imagine that we are all here this evening because we've already recognized this claim and responded positively. But what's the nature of our obedience? What is the nature of our pursuits? Do we remind ourselves frequently enough that our life in Christ is not a checklist? Do we labor for the kingdom because we long for the king? Tonight in this text, we are invited, summoned to come to Jesus in order that we never hunger again. This passage requires us to ponder why God created a world in which hunger exists at all. We all know that we need food to survive. <laughs> we are really, perhaps myself, maybe uniquely, all too aware of this reality. But are we really to believe that that's all that hunger does for us? We all know hunger intuitively. Perhaps there's a deeper meaning to this hunger. I'd posit that here, in this passage, this metaphor, Christ is placing himself into the center of the reality of a good meal. God created everything that is, including our material bodies and their relationship to food. The reason we have cravings isn't simply to tell us to eat. There are a plethora of mechanisms to tell us to have dinner. No, this is a hint at a much deeper reality. Christ is not using the metaphor of eating bread because it is merely convenient. The metaphor works precisely because our physical reliance on food is a derivative reality of our existential reliance upon God. Just as Christ questioned the motivations of the crowd for seeking him, he is asking you again tonight, what do you want from me? Are you seeking me for what I can really give you? Don't you know that all your desires are in fact pleading with you to realize how deeply you need me? Do you want what I can really give you? What I have come to give you? Christ promises to set a table before each of us, which will feed us forevermore. He is offering you fellowship at a table which will nourish you forever. No more hungering for things you can't obtain. No more longing for those things which you can't find. Do you hunger in appropriate measure for the table which he has promised to set before you? Does your life reveal a craving for him? Get him down deep in your soul. 
Plant his word deep in your soul. Pray that the Father gives you a deep desire for his word. Do you have a craving sizable enough for the eternal and infant nature of the God promising to feed you? Well, friends, take heed. This is not simply a reminder or a warning, but a promise. Beseech him for a greater appetite. Remember, he's sealed. He can give to you what he's promising, and he's not a meager giver. We know this to be true. He has this very night set a kingly meal before his people. We are called to this supper of our Lord because he promised he would nourish us. He's not left us without testimony to himself. Do you remember what Jesus says to the crowds at the end of chapter 5, just before the passage this evening? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, seek Christ. Seek him not in a new way, but remind yourself once again who he is and what he's promised you. He himself reveals to us in John's testimony that the eternal life he promises us is relational. This is eternal life that you may know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Seek to know Jesus. Make the labor of your hands throughout the week doxological. Make your efforts out in the world a witness. Live life with a vitality which testifies to how well the Lord has fed you. Christ is indeed, in and of himself, a full course meal. He will provide all the substance that you need. And again, next week, we will be called to return here to be fed again. May the Lord in his grace and his generosity give us an appropriate appetite for his glory and majesty. Let us pray. Father, forgive us when we seek your blessings with selfish hearts and teach us again the loving abundance of your son. You've given us more than we could have ever dreamed of. By your spirit, you feed us by your word. And tonight, you feed us with the sacrament. We give you great thanks for these blessings. Renew our hunger for your son and renew our vision of that great heavenly feast which, in which we will dine with you. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen.